0: In October 1962, the Americans discovered that the Soviets had installed nuclear missiles on Cuba. Defence analysts told President Kennedy they were no strategic threat to the United States. The Americans had far more nuclear weapons than the Soviets. America's allies just told Kennedy to ignore it.
1: But what they hadn't taken into account was that Khrushchev's missiles created a domestic political crisis for President Kennedy. It was one he would go to the brink of nuclear war to solve.
0: Soviet missiles on Cuba were no threat to American security, but they were a very serious threat to Kennedy's political future. He'd won the presidency partly by sharp criticism of the Republicans for doing nothing over the communist threat in general, and Cuba in particular. And he'd spent the last two months denying stories in the press and in Republican speeches that the Soviets were putting offensive weapons on the island. Hadn't his spokesman Pierre Salinger gone on TV a few weeks before, and said that if any offensive weapons were found on Cuba, the gravest issues would arise. Hadn't Congress given approval in principle for all necessary force to be used? As George Bundy would say, looking back on the crisis, Kennedy had left himself with no choice. He had to do something.
1: Even so, Kennedy could still have played the situation coolly. By chance, he was presented with the perfect opportunity. The Soviet Foreign Minister, Andrei Gromyko, happened to be in Washington and he had a meeting scheduled with the President. Eisenhower's approach to Khrushchev's aggression had been to call his bluff and negotiate the problem away. Kennedy had called Khrushchev's bluff the year before over Berlin and the Soviets had ended up having to build the Berlin Wall. There were plenty of ways to avoid making a crisis out of the Cuban missiles. The Americans, as we shall see, already had a negotiating position worked out for exactly this situation
0: but that's to ignore the elephant in the room, the one context few accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis bother with. And if historians have one duty, it's to take into account all the contexts that go to build an historical event. What we need to understand is the crisis Kennedy was already facing in the autumn of 1962. It was a crisis in his domestic policy. Accounts of the Cuban Missile Crisis almost always gloss over the domestic American situation. As soon as you look at Kennedy's domestic policy in 1962, it's obvious His presidency was not going well. It's hard to grasp now, since Kennedy is regularly voted the most popular American president, but in his own time, Jack Kennedy was not particularly popular, even within his own party. He was an outsider, a Bostonian, Catholic. It was an upset when he won the Democratic presidential nomination at Los Angeles in July 1960 against Lyndon Johnson, who'd been Democrat Senate leader since 1954. Johnson then stood as his running mate, but never got to like him. Kennedy's acceptance speech was long on vague ideas, a new frontier, civil rights, poverty, education, health, the economy, but without detailed policies on any of them. It appealed to young liberals, but not to the party's old faithful supporters.
1: The Republican candidate was Vice President Richard Nixon. Tricky Dicky came over in the newfangled presidential TV debates of 1960 as badly shaven and untrustworthy, which, given his later involvement in the Watergate scandal, was completely accurate. Even so, Kennedy barely scraped into the White House amid claims of scandal, corruption and electoral abuse. It had been the closest contest since 1888 when Grover Cleveland, yep, not a well-known name, actually received fewer popular votes than his opponent, but still became president. Just like Donald Trump. Although the Democrats also won both houses of Congress, it was clear from the start that the conservative Southern Democrats would cooperate not with their own president, but were the opposition Republicans. They meant to defeat Kennedy's liberal reforming domestic programme. Kennedy's team reckoned they could count on only 180 votes in a House of Representatives of 435. In particular, black civil rights were becoming a more and more pressing issue as violence spread through the southern states. And here the Democrats were bitterly opposed to making any concessions to the African-American population or to anyone else. Winning over these Southern Democrats to a liberal programme of poor relief looked hopeless. Crucial for the success of Kennedy's programme, it was also those same conservative Southern Democrats who dominated the key Congressional Rules Committee, which controlled which of Kennedy's reform bills got to be considered at all.
0: 1961, 16 out of 23 of Kennedy's domestic bills were defeated and almost all the rest were watered right down. Patient work by Kennedy's team, and perhaps especially by Vice President Johnson, got 40 out of 54 bills through in 1962, expanding and packing the Rules Committee with supporters helped. But many of the key pieces of legislation were still lost or altered out of recognition. In practice, Kennedy had got little done other than continuing Eisenhower's old policy of relieving the effects of poverty but doing nothing about its causes. And the American economy went on trudging along with the doldrums. 1962 had been a gruelling year. Kennedy had got into a major confrontation with US Steel when it threatened to hike up its prices to the rest of industry. Kennedy threatened an FBI investigation and the cancellation of federal contracts and US Steel backed down for the moment. But business confidence in the president sank and would take many months to recover. Meanwhile, two years into his presidency, the advisory committees that Kennedy had set up on things like women's rights and the environment were still talking and producing nothing. His healthcare reforms were getting nowhere, and his education reforms were bogged down. He'd made no progress on civil rights, and the violence was continuing. Martin Luther King was becoming publicly critical. Kennedy's approval ratings, which had been 78% in January 1962, were down to 62% by the autumn All this puts
1: the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis in a new light. Now we understand why the midterm elections of November 1962 were so crucial to Kennedy. Presidents usually lost some ground in Congress in the midterms, but Kennedy couldn't afford to. If he ended up with even fewer votes in Congress, he faced the possibility of seeing up the rest of his presidency in complete paralysis. Powerless, able to achieve even less than he had so far. It was a dire prospect, Kennedy somehow had to do well in the midterms. And then on 16th October, three weeks before polling day, George Bundy walks into his bedroom with those intelligence photos of the Cuban missile sites.
0: The elections were make or break. Kennedy desperately needed to avoid some messy foreign policy negotiation with the Soviets over Berlin, or whatever else it was that Khrushchev was angling for this time. And after all he said in the past, he had to avoid looking weak over Cuba. What he needed was a thumping, popular success.
1: Of course, we don't know what Kennedy had been thinking about when McBundy arrived in his bedroom on the 16th of October 1962 with the photographs showing Soviet nuclear missile bases on Cuba. But it was probably about the midterm elections due in three weeks, campaign hadn't been going well. The Republicans had already been loudly critical of his failure to stop the Soviet military build-up on Cuba. McBundy's news made it worse than ever. Somehow Kennedy had to find a way to turn the situation round.
0: Now it becomes obvious why Kennedy was never prepared to negotiate publicly with the Soviets in October 1962. His Republican opponents would make any compromise look like failure. It would be electorally catastrophic. Nor was he willing to follow the course the British and other American allies wanted, which was to do nothing to ignore the missiles altogether. That would have diffused the danger quickly and completely, but it would have been a disaster at the ballot box. As MacGeorge Bundy pointed out later, Kennedy had been talking tough about the Cuban problem for years, couldn't compromise now. Somehow, it seemed better to run the risk of thermonuclear war than to lose any more congressional seats at the midterm election. Therefore, whether intentionally or by accident, Jack Kennedy set out on a course that would take the world to the brink of nuclear war, rather than face the ridicule of Republicans like Senator Jack Keating and lose big at the polls in November 1962. He was, as the commentator Noam Chomsky has put it, about to play Russian roulette with nuclear missiles.
1: Kennedy was understandably furious with Khrushchev, but it was not about the strategic situation that the missiles had created. It was about the midterm elections recall from our first podcast in this series that Kennedy had had secret microphones fitted in the White House and that they recorded every word of the meetings he held throughout the crisis. When the rest of his advisers were out of the room, the secret mics recorded the president talking to his brother Bobby. He complained bitterly about the Soviet leader and his, quotes horse shit about the election. Hadn't Khrushchev made promises about, quotes not embarrassing me in the election? Now it turned out that he'd been putting nuclear weapons on Cuba all along. Talk about embarrassing. It was the upcoming election that was Kennedy's most pressing problem. Not the non-existent strategic threat of a few Soviet missiles on Cuba that Khrushchev would never in practice be able to
0: launch. Now the events that unfolded over the next 13 days make much more sense. Kennedy's first priority was obvious, as it had been all summer during the weeks when the Soviet military build-up on Cuba had become clear. Secrecy. The electors mustn't find out until he was ready to tell them. In 1962, press snappers were able to crowd around the White House. So the Kennedys had Avril Harriman, who was Secretary for Far Eastern Affairs and had nothing to do with Cuba, roll up in a vast limo and then sit around in the White House for hours pretending to be in important meetings with the President. Meanwhile, nine of the President's top security experts crammed themselves into one small car and nipped in around the back. Kennedy even went out campaigning on the election stump to make things seem normal. Though after a couple of days, his press secretary solemnly announced that the president had caught a cold and was heading home to Washington.
1: Above all, Kennedy had to avoid any hint of negotiating publicly with the Soviets. On day two of the crisis, Adlai Stevenson, who as American ambassador to the UN had of course been informed about the missiles, sent Kennedy a memo. He proposed a simple deal. The Americans had plenty of intermediate missiles trained on the Soviet Union. They were stationed in Turkey, Italy and Britain. They were no different from the new Soviet missiles on Cuba. In fact, the ones in Turkey could hit Khrushchev's dacha in five minutes. No wonder the Soviet leader was livid about them. Actually, since the Americans had now finally developed their own submarine-launched nuclear missiles, as had the Soviets, these land-based ones were becoming obsolete. Adlai Stevenson's solution was therefore simple. Do a deal. Dismantle the Turkish missiles in return for the Cuba ones. Throw in the Italian ones as well if it helped. It wasn't a new idea. The CIA had suggested it weeks before, when they first suspected Khrushchev might just put missiles on Cuba. Kennedy had a negotiating position already worked out.
0: But Kennedy didn't open any negotiations with the Soviets. On the secret tapes, we can hear him raising the idea of a missile swap with his assembled military and security advisers gathered in the crisis committee that has become known as XCOM. He told them he thought this Turkish swap idea had legs. They turned it down flat. They were eager for invasion or bombing of Cuba. Wasn't this the excuse they'd been looking for? Uh, Kennedy pointed out that there were nuclear weapons on the island. But LeMay, who was in charge of the Air Force, insisted the Soviets and Cubans would never use them. Kennedy shot back. It would be one hell of a gamble. Indeed, it would. But still, Kennedy did nothing about negotiating with the Soviets. As we shall see, there was no reason at all why Kennedy shouldn't still have pursued the idea of negotiating a missile swap without XCOM's approval if he wanted to. He could even have done it without the American public, or even most of XCOM, ever knowing. There's even good reason to believe, as we shall see, that Khrushchev would have been willing to settle for much less, a straightforward American promise not to invade Cuba. By October, Kennedy had already called off his invasion plan anyway. But Kennedy made no move. According to XCOM's briefing paper that day, the Americans' first priority should be to show the world that they would not be bullied. They couldn't be seen offering deals and concessions. If our courage and commitments are ever to be believed by either allies or adversaries, American credibility was at stake. In fact, this was all nonsense.
1: When America's allies were informed of the Soviet missile deployment, they were appalled that the president was not prepared to negotiate. Far from doubting American courage and commitment if Kennedy failed to stand firm, as EXCOMM claimed, they angrily demanded Kennedy come to a deal as fast as possible with the Soviets. The Italians declared they were happy to give up the missiles on their territory, which only made them a target for Soviet attack. The British offered to disable the missiles in the UK if it helped, the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, called Kennedy and frostily told him to chill. Western Europe had had Soviet intermediate ballistic missiles pointing at it for years. What was the big problem? Everyone knew they'd never be used while the West had the capacity to strike back and annihilate the Soviet Union. Kennedy was forced to inform XCOM that America's allies thought they were slightly demented to be turning the Cuban missiles into a crisis. Which shouldn't have come as a surprise – since everyone in the room knew that the missiles
0: posed no threat to the United States. So Kennedy could quickly have wrong-footed Khrushchev by ignoring the missiles, by doing nothing at all, or by doing a deal, swapping some of the missiles in Turkey, Italy or Britain. It would have pleased America's allies. But of course, it might have played very badly with American voters. And there were only three weeks and counting to the elections. Kennedy had to avoid any appearance of concession or compromise. So he went to great lengths to appear tough rather than be accused of blunder, inaction, retreat or failure. What he needed was a dramatic success.
1: Kennedy could have ignored the Soviet missiles on Cuba. Instead, he decided to take a hard line. It's as if he was actually spoiling for a crisis, something to win him more seats in the midterm elections. And that's certainly what some of the American journalists suspected.
0: One thing we're not usually told about the crisis is that the US press were very far from backing Kennedy. Sniffing that something was wrong, a number of journalists began running with Senator Keating's claims and suggesting that if there really were any missiles on Cuba, the Americans should simply get on and do a deal with the Soviets. They should exchange them for missiles in Turkey. But Kennedy was not taking the hint.
1: As we've mentioned, by chance, the Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko happened to be in Washington the very week the crisis blew up. He already had a rare one-to-one meeting with Kennedy scheduled for the 18th of October, day five of the crisis. At that point, everything was still shrouded in secrecy. By day five, Kennedy had already received Adlai Stevenson's memo suggesting the Turkey missile swap, the same plan the CIA had been discussing for weeks. So it wasn't as if Kennedy didn't have a ready-made bargaining position that he could have swung into place when Gromyko sat down in his office.
0: Of course, Kennedy asked Gromyko straight up whether there were offensive weapons on Cuba, and of course Gromyko denied it. And then, bizarrely, Kennedy let the matter drop. He made no attempt to suggest a deal. He made no attempt to set a diplomatic process in train. As we've seen, Ted Sorensen, who was Kennedy's friend and advisor, later wrote that Kennedy could easily have played the tough guy and maybe drawn a line in the sand, say, a hundred missiles. That was far more than the Soviets intended to put on Cuba anyway. They were no thread, would have looked like a muscular response. He could have proposed the turkey swap. He could simply have promised not to invade if the missiles were removed. The American public need never have known. And of course, none of this would have looked muscular enough for Kennedy in the eyes of his already dubious voters. So he didn't even mention the missiles to Gromyko.
1: And the most extraordinary thing about Kennedy's meeting with Gromyko was that inches from the president's knees in a drawer of his desk were the actual aerial spy photographs that proved conclusively that the Soviets were putting nuclear missiles on Cuba. Kennedy had the perfect opportunity to show them to the Soviet foreign minister himself Miko could not have continued his denials. He'd have had to begin some kind of negotiation. But Kennedy's hand never reached for the photographs. We have to conclude that Kennedy did not want to start a negotiation with the Soviets. We have to assume that Kennedy actually wanted to let this escalate into a crisis first.
0: But as the days went by, Kennedy found he had created a monster. If he was frightened and looking weak to the voters his problems were frighteningly the reverse with his security and military advisers in ExCom. In spite of Ted Sorensen's memo at the start of day three saying the missiles made no significant difference, many of the men in the room were keen to use the crisis to hammer the Cubans hard. On the tapes you can hear US Air Force Chief of Staff Curtis LeMay again and again demanding a full-out invasion of the island, even if it risks setting off a nuclear war. When Kennedy's out of the room, the military chiefs grumble bitterly that the president is frigging around he won't immediately bomb or invade Cuba. By allowing the crisis to escalate, as we shall see, Kennedy risked losing control to men like Curtis LeMay. Kennedy and his advisers sat daily, sometimes more than daily, as his executive committee or ex took until Monday the 22nd of October, astonishingly already day eight of the crisis, with absolutely no negotiations yet started, before Kennedy was ready to make a move eight days in which Soviet ships went on steaming towards Cuba with their missiles, troops and military supplies, and Soviet technicians went on constructing missile launchers and anti-aircraft batteries on Cuba. What the official American military histories say is that these days were spent weighing up the various scenarios considering their possible impact on Allies and on the situation in Berlin. They make no mention at all of any diplomatic move to sort the crisis out without any military action. Instead, The crisis was allowed to spiral for seven long, dangerous days.
1: When Kennedy was finally ready, he went to amazing lengths to make sure leading congressmen were on hand to hear all about it. Hale Boggs, representative for Louisiana, was fishing in the Gulf of Mexico when a military helicopter flew up and hovered overhead. A bottle splashed into the sea. It was a message for Congressman Boggs. It said, call Washington. Urgent message from the president. What Kennedy intended to do was not to launch an invasion, nor send Air Force Chief Curtis LeMay's planes to drop bombs. Nor would he ignore the Cuban missiles as his allies proposed. Nor would he begin formal talks with the Soviets, as his ambassadors to the United Nations and many other people were suggesting. What Kennedy intended to do was to go on television.
0: Seven days into the Cuban Missile Crisis, having made no attempt to defuse the situation at all, Kennedy was finally ready to make his move. Not invasion, not bombing, not negotiation. He was going to go on television.
1: Of course, he was going to address the American voters. That's what this was all about.
0: Even at the last minute, Kennedy was in no hurry to get on with resolving the nuclear crisis. Congressman Boggs and the others were told to stand by for a presidential broadcast at 7 o'clock in the evening. Of course, it had to be prime-time television. Kennedy sent the text to Moscow just one hour before. Khrushchev got it at 1.15 in the morning Moscow time. So much for diplomacy. Kennedy's broadcast when it finally came was one of the most famous 17 minutes in prime-time TV history. In his most solemn Boston drawl, the President intones it shall be the policy of this nation to respond to any missile attack from Cuba with a full retaliatory strike upon the Soviet Union. That, of course, as Kennedy himself might have put it, was all horseshit. Everyone in XCOM knew that given overwhelming American nuclear superiority, the chances the Soviets would launch their missiles was something indistinguishable from zero. But Kennedy did not tell that to the 100 million voters who tuned in. Nor that there were no nuclear shelters if ever he were crazy enough to start a nuclear war. The important thing was to make his crisis appear as serious as possible.
1: And then Kennedy produced his coup de théâtre. He announced that American ships would encircle Cuba to prevent any more military supplies getting to the island. Every ship of any nationality would be stopped and searched. Kennedy called it a quarantine for the reason that a blockade in international waters, which is what it was in fact, is against international law, technically an act of war. So Kennedy's would not be a blockade, but a quarantine. The effect
0: of Kennedy's broadcast was electric. That night, Manhattan's theatre district was deserted. Ten million Americans threw their things in a suitcase and got ready to flee, quite literally, to the hills. Parents bought dog tags for their children so their bodies could be identified if a missile landed. A Gallup poll showed that 84% of Americans approved of Kennedy's quarantine. His election trick was working its magic.
1: Kennedy's quarantine, however, was definitely not what it appeared, or as most accounts of the crisis have pictured it ever since, as we shall discover next time at the
0: History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.